Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law matters. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment Law at Erwin Mitchell. Hi, and I'm Jo Mosley. I'm a support lawyer in the employment team and I write our blogs and newsletters and keep the team up to date. So, Jo, the sun is shining. What are we talking about today? Well, I thought we could talk about new starters and what employers can do when someone flies through an interview, the employer thinks they've appointed the ideal candidate, but quickly changes their mind once they start work. And it's, I I thought of this really based on a conversation I had a few weeks ago with a friend. It's a bit of a saga. So are you sitting comfortably, Glenn? I am. Okay, then I'll begin. So my friend is a line manager for a big public sector employer. She line manages a small team. And I don't think she was actually involved in the interview, but she had to deal with the situation that resulted after this person was appointed. So they were looking for a person that could work on a full time basis and everything was agreed. But before this person started work, they requested changes to their working hours and they were agreed. So it was agreed that from day one, this person would work from eight to four rather than I think it was going to be nine to five. Okay, so first day, she doesn't turn up for work until after nine. And when her line manager, not a great start at all, no. And when her line manager asked her about the reasons for it, she said she had childcare difficulties. Okay, so same thing happened on the second day. So they had a, a more frank discussion at that point. And she asked if her hours could be changed back to the original hours, so nine to five, and that was agreed. Okay, so that was the the first part of it. It was also agreed that they, or she had to come into the office, I think it was once a week, but they have like anchor days and all of the um, people in her team meet once a week and it's either in one office or or another. Um, She didn't turn up to the first date. Right. Again, she said she had difficulties um, getting there. She didn't att- She didn't turn up on the second week either. And by the time my friend had the conversation with me, we were three weeks in and she hadn't been to any of these in- in-person events. And she'd made a fair, you know, a number of excuses about it. Sometimes it was an upset stomach and all sorts of other things. Okay? Right. So she wanted to get rid of her. She spoke with HR and the HR said she couldn't. And that led to a conversation with me about the contract. And one of the things that came out of that conversation was that this person hadn't got a probationary period. So Mm -hmm. I thought we could talk today about how employers get the right person for, for the job and the importance really of getting the contract right. And I thought that we could dig into the detail a little bit on probationary periods and what they do and what they don't, for example. Yeah. Okay, so before we start, can I ask you if you see many employment problems that begin at such an early stage in the employment relationship? The short answer is is yes. So, and I I say that with some hesitance because I think a few years ago, I don't think I don't think that it was as big a problem as what it is now. But I think COVID's changed it. How Um, interesting! And the reason I say that is that I think I think a lot of interviews during covid times and in post covid times have been done online right and i and i actually think that it's actually quite difficult to really assess people the mannerisms the culture how they interact with other people via uh-huh. online methods like teams or 
whatever. I mean, it used to be a case that, for example, if I was recruiting somebody, I might I might interview them myself, then I might get a member of the team to interview them with me, and then I might actually get them into the office and either go for a cup of coffee or a pint or whatever after work just to see whether they're going to be a good fit. Yeah. And I think some of some of that, that has been lost, I think, and I'm not saying it's exclusive down to COVID or anything like that, but I've certainly seen a rise of it, I think. And because remember, the probationary period really, there isn't anything particularly legalistic about it. What it does, if it's done properly, is it gives employer and employee a chance to properly assess whether the employee is doing well and likes the organ. You know, it's a two-way thing. Yeah. But in legal terms, the only real advantage of a probationary period is being able to terminate on shorter notice. Yes. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. So. Are there any common threads then, if we sort of take it slightly outside of the sort of COVID context, that explain why an employment relationship turns sour so quickly? I wondered if you could perhaps drill into the detail of that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, well, I think there are. So I think it could be a number of different things, but the issues that we see most often in practice are really either competency-based or down to attitude. So if mm. you take those separately, I suppose, the competency stuff, you know, if you've not asked the right questions at interview and the candidates are poor fit for the job, then, you know, you can generally test those things out at interview, I, I think, if you're asking the right questions. Yeah. So you need to really test what they say about the key skills. So, you know, we've all read CVs that have been, well, in, in kind terms and embellishment in in um, less kind terms, downright lies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so you need to really test what people have said to, you know, give me an example of when you did X or whatever. So, so competency-based questions. Yeah, yeah, and I think that would be helpful because it tends to flush out those, you know, because you might find that somebody's a bit part in a project rather than have led it, you know, as to what the CV says, for example. Yeah. So if the job works, involves working collaboratively with others, you know, you, you might not be able to see how they work as a team or work under pressure as part of that interview. So, again, you know, there might be some actually some form of assessment that, that's involved in that to try and um, help you get the right person for the job as part of the interview. It's also uh, important to check references. And I think, you know, in modern times, I think that's quite difficult now because generally speaking, people only give standard references because they don't want to be sued for negligent misstatement by saying something that's false or misleading. So mm -hmm. that's, that's quite difficult to check now. And then if you think about people's attitude, it is quite hard to pick things up at interviews. So, you know, even interviews in person. So I think as your friend's experience demonstrates, it usually doesn't take that long to see the signs of that poor attitude coming out, you know, sort of person that sits in the corner in the office. So if you're if you're expected to come in for the team day and you sit a million miles away from the team, for example, that might give me a bit of a warning sign. You know, how they interact with people, are they better in the mornings and the afternoons? You know, what's the general demeanour like? You know, are this sort of person just to come in and do the job, which is fine with some things, but if you are expected to work collaboratively, it might not be. So, you know, I think there are certainly some themes down to those sort of two overarching observations about competency and attitude, I think. Yeah, you make an interesting point about attitude, and I wondered if we could explore that a little bit. So you mentioned that you might have someone that basically is just doing the bare minimum. And I suppose, you know, that's relatively easy to deal with, isn't it? You know, this sort of couldn't care less attitude. They either pull up their socks or they do and do what's required or they leave. But 
Can I ask you about what you'd advise an employer to do in a situation where someone decides after they've agreed terms that they can't work the hours they've agreed, for example? Yeah. So just before we get on to that question, just the, the first point about the bare minimum point. I mean, I, I was speaking to a mate of mine a couple of weeks ago who said to me that he had he just joined, he just started a new job um, somewhere. And he said, I said to him, how's it going? He said, well, it's going really well, but I've got one guy in my team who's not been there much longer than him, like three or four weeks longer. And he said, and I'm spending a disproportionate amount of time on this guy. And I said to him, well, why don't you just, you know, without being overly harsh, why don't you just fire him? You know, yeah. he's got less than two years service. You know, and and this guy's sort of wasting all of your time. Why don't you just get rid of him? And they were a bit like your friend, really. They were quite reluctant to to, to do that and have that difficult conversation. Um, but what what transpired was when they got down to is that this guy basically knew that the job wasn't right for him, and I right. think he was literally doing the bare minimum and being relatively disruptive. So I think where my mate got to was really to get to the point where he was going to have to say, look, you either improve or. You you know the the doors there type of thing, yeah. and um, ultimately came in the, the week the weekend after I spoke to him, he um, he texted me and said this guy's handed in his notice today, he's decided the job's not for him and he's gone somewhere else. So he's either psychic and knew that he was about to be dismissed, or um, <laughs> you know, or it's just a timing thing really. But yeah. in, in answer to your original question, I, I think in, in, you know where they can't work the hours and where they've agreed terms they can't work. I think it depends on. A number of factors really and how flexible an employer wants to be mm-hmm. so i think in my view it's reasonable to expect that an employee will negotiate hours and locations at the time that the employees offered the job so if they then start the job and then can no longer work the hours or the, at that location I'd, i think i'd really want to know what's changed in the interim because you know it, it sounds to me like there's a very good reason as to why your friend as an employer needs people in the office on certain days and needs to start at certain times. So they have to be a little bit careful because there are sort of discrimination elements that could come into this sort of childcare, sex discrimination type issues, I suppose. Yeah. And But, you know, it, it may be that your friend can justify a decision that's made on that basis for the reasons why you need somebody to be in between the hours of nine and five and being on a Wednesday or a Thursday or whatever it is in order to defeat any argument in that uh, a justification argument in that regard before the justification argument so yeah. you know how much notice have they given you about needing to change the arrangements it doesn't it's not great if it's on the first day of work and that's not really appropriate unless it's an emergency and just yeah. remember there is there is a legal right to ask for flex working and it was kicked around that this was going to become a day one right and um, but that's not the case at the minute it's, you've got to um you've got to work for 26 weeks in order to to have that right to request uh, to work flexibly under the, yeah. the legal framework at least. So, yeah, I think um, my friend was irked, not so much about the the time because work, starting work at eight or starting work at nine didn't really matter to the organisation. There wasn't really, you know, they had various flexible arrangements. It was just the fact that they'd gone through a process, they'd agreed one thing mm. um, on the first day, she then couldn't do it. And then they're then negotiating on the hoof almost because she then can't do what she was expected to do and I think that's what she found frustrating really more so than whether they could accommodate it it was really did she did she want to accommodate somebody that was so difficult I think that was where she was coming from as much as anything yeah and and I get that I think but you do have to you do have to tread a little bit carefully depending on what the reason for the change is so you know if there's been some change in the childcare arrangements or whatever then 
then I think you would need to take that into account. You'd have to be careful of the discrimination angle there. I've even seen it, Joe, before where somebody's agreed to start a job and then um, something materials changed, and then you get into this point about whether or not you have to, whether or not you can dismiss before somebody's even started. And and the legal answer normally is well, providing you pay the notice, then then you're generally okay because yeah. that's the notice you'd have to pay. But there are some exceptions to that, and again, we're sort of delving into discrimination territory. So, you know, in the example I had recently, somebody had been diagnosed with cancer, and they were going to have to have some fairly intensive treatment, and couldn't really therefore do what they wanted to do. So. When I was advising that employer, we we did have to tread very carefully. And yeah. actually, what we did was we went back to the individual and said, "Look, we really love you to start in our business, but obviously, by your own admission, that you, you you can't on this date. So, as and when you are ready to come back, can you let us know? And if there's a job there, then we'll happily have you. But if if obviously if you can't start, we do need somebody pressing to start this job. That's why we had, went out to market to advertise it and. You know, we went about it in the sensitive way. And in the end, the, the, the employee came back and said, actually, I, I just don't think I'm going to be able to do it. But I really appreciate the sensitive way in which you've handled the situation. So mm, that's good. So sh we've, we've talked a little bit about probationary periods. What would your answer be if I was to ask if a contract doesn't contain a probationary period, can an employer argue that it's implied that there's one that the contract is subject to? So we know that there are implied terms that are implied into employment contracts. Is a probationary period one of those? No. And the reason is, realistically, is that there will be a notice provision, presumably in the contract, that says what the express notice is. And in the absence of a clause that says, in the first X amount of months of somebody's contract, i.e. a probationary period, you can serve one week rather than one month or three months or whatever. Yeah. You'll fall back on the express terms in the contract. So and in any way, most most contracts include an entire agreement clause anyway. So, you know, even if it's been discussed outside the express terms of those contracts, if it's not in there, then uh, you're not going to be able to rely upon it as a as an employer. Or an employee for that matter, because you know Probationary periods work both ways, remember, normally at least. So it might be that both parties can give a shorter period of notice rather than just the employer, albeit yes. they're, they're often just one-sided. Yeah, that's a very clear answer. So is there a maximum or minimum length of probationary period? No. So it depends on the nature of the job, really. The more senior, generally, the longer the period of time. But normally, sort of three to six months is about right. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I think it's rare to really see anything longer than 12 months, but it, I suppose it might be appropriate in exceptional cases. So, Yeah, yeah. OK, so let's assume that a contract of employment includes a probationary period of, say, six months, but it's clear that things are not working out. Does the employer have to wait until the end of the six-month period to dismiss the employee, or can they give notice earlier than that? That seems to be a point that exercises a lot of employers. Yeah, well, I think... Um, like I said to you, there isn't really anything magic about a probationary period, save for the shorter notice period. So if 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 after two months you in a six month probationary period you decide that enough's enough, then I think you know you can just serve your notice in my view. So I mean that's the legal answer, but from a from a point of view of employee relations, really, I don't think you should really just try and spring this stuff on the employee. Normally. The employee should be made aware that you've got some concerns. Yeah. It's important to meet them regularly, give feedback, flag any issues that they need to discuss. But in theory, you could just call them into a room and say, I'm sorry, it's not working out after 
a week if you wanted to and say, right, I'm sorry, I'm serving you notice, yeah. irrespective of the length of the probationary period. Do they always have to serve notice to end a probationary period? Yeah, unless it's gross misconduct. So you might not require the person to work the notice, which is a different question, but the, the notice is usually uh, much less than the uh, contractual notice period in the probationary period. Okay. So let's say I've got an employee who's subject to a three-month probationary period. She's doing okay, but I've still got some concerns. Can I extend the probationary period? So this is a question that does come up quite a lot. So the starting point really is to look at what the contract says and whether you're allowed to do it or not. Because if you're not, then I think in theory the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. But assuming that you can, okay, you need to extend it before the end of the probationary period. And if you miss that date, you know, again, the starting position is that you can't extend it. Quite a lot of um, contracts though now say you won't be deemed to have passed the probationary period unless we've specifically confirmed it to you in writing. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, under those circumstances, the probationary period might be deemed to have been extended automatically. But then you do get you do get arguments raised about whether or not, you know, people have passed it by default in situations where those contracts don't have that clause. And I think, yeah, in my, my view on it would be that unless there is a clause to that effect, unless you've told the employee there's an issue, okay, and therefore you are activating that extension, then you'll be... It, it will be deemed to have accepted, be accepted for the purposes of tribunals at least, that the, um, that the probationary period has been extended. Yeah, yeah. So even if you've got a clause that says that your probationary period will only be agreed to um, have been passed once we've given you written notification about it, presumably an employer can't rely on that indefinitely. So let's say, for example, they 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 miss it. The, the anniversary is six months. They don't say anything. The employee continues to work and then say six or even nine months later, the employer pipes up and says, actually, you're, you're not doing very well, I'm going to dismiss you on a week's notice because you haven't passed your probationary period. Well, I think the um, I think the issue will come down to reasonableness because I think a tribunal would look at the situation and say, I don't think there's any case law on this, by the way, but I, I think the tribunal would say, look, you know, at what point was it reasonable for the employee to believe that they've passed the probationary period? But that's that's just an opinion. I'm not, I'm not sure there's any case law on that, Joe. The only practical difference, realistically, is likely to be the notice period. So if I if I, if if I can terminate you on a week's notice during your probationary period, but it's otherwise a month, then you're arguing about the three weeks difference, aren't you, in an employment tribunal, realistically? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So before we move on to your favourite part, which is the quiz, you're can good. I ask you one more thing? You can. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So can an employer impose a probationary period on an existing member of staff if they've promoted them or they've changed job roles, for example? Well, yes. So the same principles apply, really. So you need to assess the employee and meet with them regularly and look at ways in which they can improve if they're not performing at the required level. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the difference really is what happens to them if they fail it. Because if you fail your probationary period in a new role, the general consequence is that you are dismissed from your role. Yeah. Now, if you are into a new role at the same company, so you've been promoted, for example, and you've perhaps you've, you're not really ready for that promotion, question is what really happens in those situations so you know if the individual's got two years service for example they've got unfair dismissal rights okay you'd be expected probably to go down a performance improvement plan 
does the job offer, for example, of the of the promotion allow you to put them back into the old role if it hasn't worked out? Mm. You know, there's obviously arguments about whether that's constructive dismissal or not. But again, I don't think I don't think that would stand up realistically if you've got the contractual right to do that because there can't be a breach of contract under those circumstances. Yeah. But if you were if you were thinking about dismissing rather than demoting back, if you like, then you'd have to follow through a fair procedure before dismissal and that might be relevant because you might have backfilled their role when they got promoted for example so you would need to follow that fair procedure before dismissal and the ACAS code of practice might be relevant as well so yeah yeah brilliant any other tips for employers about probationary periods that you'd like to mention well look I think what they are there when they're done for if they're done well is to allow regular meetings to review people's performance and attitude so if the if the employee is working okay then you know let them know that but if they're not then that the dismissal you need to tell them and that dismissal shouldn't really come out of the blue so Mm -hmm. keep a record of the end of the period decide whether to extend it or dismiss the probation period and, and document that decision you know it's helpful to show the reason at the time if the employee disputes it so or if they accuse you of acting unfairly or discriminatory. So you, you'd want that documented record to be able to fall back on if you needed. So, you know, it, it, again, it, I say this a lot in employment law, but it's about dialogue, really. So and documenting what that dialogue is about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Drum roll. Here's the quiz. You ready? Yeah. OK, so Mr S was employed as a finance director and he was on an initial salary of 23,500. If that sounds very low, bear in mind this is a 1995 case. So I think he'd be on considerably more than that now. The contract provided that he would receive a pay increase of £1,500 upon successful completion of a three-month probationary period. Okay. He didn't get a pay rise at the end of his probationary period and the employer said that he hadn't successfully completed it and that his performance was unsatisfactory. He brought a claim arguing that he was entitled to the pay rise. Do you think he succeeded? So I'll just tell you what the contract was said again first. The contract provided that he would receive a further £1,500 upon the successful completion of a three-month probationary so period. So I think it would depend on whether he's been told within that period whether he's passed or failed the probation or not. But if he if he was told that he's failed the probationary period, then I think that's fair enough. Yeah, he wasn't told uh, anything well, about the probationary period. He I just think, continued to work. I think the employer's got an issue there then. So I would say he probably was successful. He was successful. Um, yeah. That's because the tribunal said that the key term was successful completion. And all that meant in this context was survival. And it actually put it in yeah. those terms. But so it, does go, it does go to show you, though, doesn't it? So in those situations where there's a financial incentive that rides on it, as well as the notice period, for example, employers need to really spell it out that somebody's failed that probationary period and, and why, really? Because otherwise, that you know, in that case, there's, a, there's an actual financial payment triggered. Yeah. And yeah. you do actually see pay rises on the back of stuff like that quite regularly on probationary periods. It's the other angle to it, to be fair. No, oh, I was going to ask you about that. Because I yeah, haven't well, seen that many of those, I must say. It, it happens quite often where somebody joins and it's partway through a, a financial year, for example, and people's pay reviewed in January or, you know, June or whatever. Yeah. So you might you might want to preempt that and deal with that situation so you might say well actually our pay reviews are in january but as you only start in november 
you know, if you pass your probationary period, we'll we'll change your pay from, I don't know, twenty grand to twenty five or whatever, just to because that's what we should have brought you in. If, but the first bit is really to test out whether we should be paying you at that level. Mm-hmm. And you might you sometimes even see backdated, Joe. Oh right, okay, right. Are you ready for number two? So we're on a hundred percent at the moment. Get in. <laughs> Right. Here's so where this, it all goes wrong. This is a, this is a more difficult one. Okay. okay. So, this involves a woman, a Ms. E, who was employed on a probationary basis in a call centre where employees were given monthly sale targets. Okay. She became pregnant during her probationary period and had a number of pregnancy-related absences. Okay, and that led to her missing her targets for two consecutive months. So her employer extended her probationary period by a further month and she had fewer absences during that month, but she still missed her targets, albeit narrowly. And they decided that they would dismiss her on the basis that she hadn't met the targets and had failed her probationary period. So she argued that this was an act of sex discrimination and that her target should have been revised in light of her pregnancy and the related absences. Do you think she won? Yes. So the reason I say that is that my view is that as an employee, you're not required to discount all absence, but you are required to make reasonable adjustments in the disability context, assuming that that meets the test of a disability. You might well, not she was actually. pregnant. She was pregnant. She wasn't. Dis- there was no no indication that she was disabled. She was just pregnant and was okay. But if, from things like morning sickness. But it, but if the performance is affected by the pregnancy, then arguably, then it is discriminatory to reach that conclusion potentially mm. at least. So I do think some adjustment or rectification of those targets would need to be taken into account before taking that decision. So I I think she probably did succeed, yeah, because I think you'd have to look at the <laughs> I think you'd have to look at the position what she would have achieved if you make some form of adjustment for those for those pregnancy related absences. So if I'm required to make ten sales a month for argument's sake in order to pass my probationary period, I'm off for half the month, and I only make five, then mm. arguably I've reached the target, haven't I? Mm. Mm. Well, you're right. What the tribunal said was that the employer should have done a risk assessment anyway as she was pregnant. And had it done a risk assessment based on her particular, you know, illnesses, it would have more likely than not have reduced her targets to, you know, take that into consideration. But in, in my example, Joe, if she'd have if she'd have done no sales, right, yeah. and been there for half the month, then arguably the position could be quite different. In my view, because I don't think you're expected to just discount absolutely everything. You're just there to take it into account a bit like, I know I said disability before, but it's a bit like that situation in my view. Yeah, no, I think you're right on that. But um, as I say, she was she was very close to meeting her targets anyway. And it was only really because of these pregnancy related absences that she didn't. And what the tribunal were essentially saying is that they should have adjusted them, you know, just for the period during which she was suffering from morning sickness which seems to me to be entirely sensible it's interesting you say about pregnancy joe there's a case that sticks in my memory for a client who will remain nameless but i um there was an individual who started for my client and was effectively like a bully in the china shop and my client basically rang me and said 
we we called her into a meeting to dismiss her from her employment and she and what she said to us was before you say anything to me um, i just need to tell you that i'm pregnant <laughs> so the, the client bailed out of said meeting and rang me for some advice and i said to them well look what what evidence have you got that you were going to terminate this person prior to announcing that they were pregnant because time and wise it's not great if, if all of a sudden you dismiss somebody who's just literally just told you that they're pregnant mm. and anyway there was quite a lot of evidence that we had that she'd upset clients she'd upset employees you know anybody she'd come into contact with she she was literally like a bully in a china shop right. and i think in in those situations it evidence is absolutely key because you know as i say time and wise it literally stinks but uh, you know, ultimately, you'd, you'd want to look at the documentation to show that the decision had nothing to do with the pregnancy in that example, and it was just a pure failure of a probationary period. The other way of looking at that situation, though, is that she knew what was coming. She knew that she wasn't behaving appropriately. She knew that she was probably going to be dismissed. Therefore, she raised the fact that she was pregnant almost as a get out of jail free card. But I do take your point about the fact that, you know, you obviously need to be able to demonstrate a reason why you're looking to dismiss someone that isn't in any way related to the fact that someone has just announced that they're pregnant. Yeah. yeah. Mm, interesting. Interesting. I suppose what you know, that case that we've just discussed demonstrates is that for employers, they don't just have to look at the contractual terms, the terms they've got to factor in other things, haven't they? Like the risk of discrimination in the way that you've outlined. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And whistleblowing is another one where it comes up yeah. quite often. Yeah. No. Oh, interesting. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. So if you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, tune in a fortnight. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.